This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. I am super keen to hear what our municipal panelists have to say today because we have two of the five former mayors who penned that open letter to current Mayor John Tory asking him to give back those extra powers he just got. Extra powers they are calling undemocratic. Extra powers that John Tory actually asked for, by the way. Yesterday at the first session of council, he tried to reassure councillors that he would only use those powers in extreme situations. So does extreme mean occasions where council doesn't do what he wants? Because in his last term, he won every vote he called. And so I'm wondering, does this give new meaning to the expression, uh, my way or the highway? Or is it my way for the highway? Anyway, uh, John Tory says he is looking at the letter. And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO and former mayors of Toronto, David Crombie and John Sewell. Hello, everyone. Hi, Hello. How are you? Hello. 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 So, first of all, uh, to the former mayors, uh, publicly, John Tory said he'd look at the letter, but have you heard from him one-on-one? David? I uh, haven't heard anything at all from him, no. Uh, so, I, all I've got is what I heard uh, from the media uh, and one or two people from council. So, that I did not hear anything. Uh-huh. And, John, you? Yeah, exactly the same. No, we... We haven't heard a word. He hasn't replied. Hmm. Uh, so uh, what are your concerns about this? I mean, I, I you know, uh, personally, I get that the mayor of Toronto maybe should have a little more clout than a councillor. But, you know, passing things with only a third, I've, I don't think I've ever seen that, um, David. Well, no, for sure. It's, it's, it's the most extreme example of, of the powers and and it's and it's one it just we shouldn't stand for it i mean it, the idea that somehow the mayor of the day could determine whether or not the majority rule principle applies is absolutely beyond anything that anybody ever thought would happen in this city it, 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 that it happens anywhere in the democratic process where you hand over to the mayor or the chief executive power that they could decide whether or not it's a third or a majority is going to vote on this and win. That's bizarre. That And that was our major concern. It, 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 and, and John may want to add to that, but before he does, let me say our second concern, just as, just as important, uh, is that it, it's supposed to be exercised within the context of provincial interests. Well, the current provincial interests are the unraveling uh, of, 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 of the Greenbelt uh, and the hollowing out of the, uh, the conservation authorities, and a host of other rules and regulations that bind uh, municipalities and have actually disturbed the ways in which council has done its job below these many years. So uh, the, 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 
the powers that were that, that uh, John Tory sought and got are really un, uh, they're just unconscionable for the city in my judgment. Um, John Sewell, do you have any idea what he was thinking? And I'm even wondering if he said, "I want." you know, more power, but uh, it was the province that came up with one-third rules. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think he he thought, well, maybe there's some votes that he hasn't been able to get through. People have referred to the fact that uh, there was a vote about whether there should be rooming houses throughout Toronto. Um, and in fact, uh, council apparently voted against that or he didn't think he had the votes for it. Interestingly enough, it was his allies on council who, in fact, were opposed to the idea. And he thought, oh, I, I've got to somehow have the power to do that. But, but here's the problem. I mean, imagine having a politician, a leading politician, that say, oh, your vote doesn't count. Oh, and your vote doesn't count either. Oh, in fact, all you people on the majority, your vote doesn't count. You know, democracy is based on the idea of, some sort of equality between us. You know, everybody has one vote and votes count. And this legislation says, no, no, votes don't count at all. Who cares about them? Uh, We'll just let a small rump group make decisions. Uh, The the fact that, that the mayor of Toronto suggested this is unbelievable. And of course, he did it during the election campaign, he didn't tell anybody he was doing it. I believe if he told anybody he was doing it, he would not have been elected. People would have said, we can't stand for this. I, 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 for- again, I, you know, I, I wonder if that aspect of it actually came from him. I mean, it just, uh, you know, we've all known him for a long time. It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't, it it seems odd, and I, I want to turn to Lauren. Like, but you're in the demographic that presumably stands to gain from uh, more houses, whatever they are calling it. I mean, this demographic is also very. We're a lot about fairness and um, the importance of democracy. I think you'll find a lot of politically active, especially the generation below, Gen Z. I mean, majority rule is one of the key tenets of democracy. And so to see Canada's largest city, the mayor of Canada's largest city, and to learn that he suggested this, that that he can put pass things through without the majority of voters, that's that's scary. And that's kind of an insult to the democratic process. And I think the fact that he, he apparently asked for these powers, but didn't tell anyone until after yeah. the election was kind of shady. So we definitely stand to gain a lot from increase in housing. But I don't think anyone wants to see the green belt destroyed if they really know what's at stake. Yeah. And, you know, here's the other thing I, I'm wondering about, David. This is the other thing that has me scratching my head. Before this came out, you know, John Tory, very popular, almost beloved uh, mayor, uh, coming back to council after basically getting uh, everything he wanted from council beforehand. And I'm wondering if now there's not going to be pushback because he's done that, not related to whatever substance of what he's going to put forward, David. I think there was, there's certainly that risk. It's a very strong one, because if you're on council and, 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 and the mayor now has the power to shut you down and say your vote doesn't count and the people you represent don't count. If he's got that kind of power, 
if you're on council, you're not going to take that easily. And so I think you're going to find that it's going to work the reverse in some ways, in which there were both the premier and the mayor were thinking was going to. Because I think council will find a way in which to say, you can't treat us like that. We are equal in the voting, as John Sewell just pointed out. And, and the idea that somehow between the premier and the mayor, that is that's a that, that historic right of, of understanding you do it through majority rule, um, that you could just get rid of that. Uh, uh, that's just not going to go. So I think the council will respond in a way that the, I, and I hope they do uh, in a way that, that the premier and the mayor were not looking for. Uh, John, I mean, do you think this will backfire on him? Oh, very much so. But And the other point is that they say that they're doing this in order to get more housing. But look, at, there is a thing called the construction crane index, which looks at all the big construction cranes in cities, because that indicates how much development is going on. And in Toronto in 2022, there were 252 construction cranes, great big construction cranes, building high-rise buildings, most of them condominiums. The next large city in, in North America that had a number of construction cranes was Los Angeles with 51 construction cranes. So Toronto has far, far more housing construction than any other city in North America. And we've been in that position for the last seven years. So to say that you need extraordinary powers to get more housing, that's wrong. We're building, I mean, as, as anybody who drives... What kind of housing? Knows, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. As you, um, like you can't get around. You uh, can't get around, yeah. I, I'm going to so take it, a... It's a false premise that you, you need these powers to get more housing. Um, it's it's just a, a ripping up of democracy, and it's wrong. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Patty in Mimico. Hi, Patty. Hi, Pat. Uh, hi, Patty. <laughs> hi, I love the show, Libby. Thanks. So uh, what do you think about uh, the mayor uh, being able to get things through with only a third of council? Um, I kind of have a little twist on it, especially since with who you have on the show today. So I kind of have a question. And an opinion. Okay, I'm quickly. in my 21st year as a wheel trans driver for uh, the TDC, so I've seen a lot of changes. So my question is, especially with this whole green belt thing, um, with all the projects going on and sitting in traffic, and uh, and the way they move, I'm just wondering. The city is or the province easily expropriates properties for their purposes. Could we not expropriate back the 407? Buy it back, give it to the people now, and have a highway. Leave that green belt alone. There were studies done for reasons, and we're supposed to not touch it. Um, Why is Mr. Ford going after it? Uh, uh, well, there are a lot of theories about that. Patty, thanks for your call a little bit off topic. Uh, we've talked about the 407 before. And uh, let's take another one from Daryl before we resume with our panel. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how's everyone today? Um, I just wanted to, you know, to me, this is crazy. It's, it's almost a shame the notwithstanding clause. And these things are going to be, you know, very, very bad, especially if we have the wrong people in the office or using them. I mean, try and imagine if Rob Ford came by and had these powers. 
Uh, I mean, it'd be a total zoo and a circus. And I think, I think that the, the mayor and also in terms of the notwithstanding problems, there needs to be a body, an independent body that reviews any of these things and has to certify them as viable. Okay. It's just left up to whoever is in power. Okay, Daryl, thanks for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the whole issue of strong mayors was discussed during the election, but not with that particular detail. Um, th- that, I mean, I don't, I don't, who even knows if that was on the table then? Uh, David, do you have a sense? Well, uh, as I understand it, well, there was a discussion going on about strong, par- uh, strong mayor powers, and that's at least a healthy debate to have. We've had them before. We'll have them again. Uh, I, I tend not to, I do not support the strong mayor position generally. I think that, that the, the council and the city are better served by the mayor having to do his work to make sure he can get a majority for what he wants to have done. Um, but I, I think now it's even more difficult to understand because it's, it, 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 at least the mayor is guilty of shallow thinking that somehow what happens if someone says, look, I'm the new mayor and I'm going to do what I want. The mayor thinks, Mayor Tory thinks that somehow if he simply says, I will not use it except with restraint, that that's good enough. But, but, but the laws aren't changed just from, uh, from administration to administration. What does happen if you now have someone come in power who does maybe have the restraint that Mayor Tory might have? Um, and, and we've now stuck with somebody who could say, I can get along with, with it. We've ruined the democratic process. That's why John's got a anger in his voice, because this is not a small thing. They, they've simply torn up uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of understanding that the only tenet that you can really depend upon in having a democratic process is a majority rules. Okay, I, I, I'm like tempted to <laughs> just say something like stop the steal. Um, uh, Lauren, so, uh, you know, um, so you think your demo, what about the political makeup of council? So we have, uh, what is it, nine new councillors or seven? And most of them are so-called progressives. But I think progressives would probably be more on side to the more housing as opposed to the traditional John Tory ally. So how do you think that plays into this? Well, I think like Mr. Sewell said, I, I think that it's being conflated, this issue of building more housing and strong mayor powers. I don't think that they need to take away, um, you know, the ability for the majority of council to overrule the mayor for us to build more affordable housing. And that link is kind of tenuous, I think, that they're drawing. Um, I, I, it's my understanding, and I'm sure the former mayors know a lot more about this, but that on city council, they're kind of supposed to be party neutral, right? Like there's... Um, right, but there's the so-called progressives, yeah. and some of them are like card-carrying NDP, not that there's anything wrong with that. No. Uh, and then there's uh, the other people kind of uh, centrist or, or right who are the John Tory allies. Right. So with I think if there are more progressives on council now, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I think that's the whole point of this now, because if John Tory can just be like, well, this does not align with the interests of what Doug Ford wants. So like, screw you guys. Um, I'm just going to push it through anyways. And I think that's kind of what is bizarre about it. Um, the fact that they have that caveat that if it does not align 
with the interests of the province. Toronto is its own city, and obviously we're part of the province of Ontario. It's we are a creature of the province. We are, indeed. But it's just kind of wild to me that that is, that is why, well, if we don't like something, if the province doesn't like something, that we can just overturn it or... Conversely, like if it aligns with the province's priorities, then they can just push it through. John, do you see uh, any any of this sort of uh, resulting or playing into the new makeup of council? Well, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, but I but I think uh, it's true that there is a much more progressive side of council given the recent election. But I wanted to make a comment about this whole thing about affordable housing. You know, none of the housing that Doug Ford is talking about is affordable. It's it's filled really expensive. The only way we're going to get affordable housing is with substantial government subsidies. I mean, they're just, we got to be clear about that. They are not things the city of Toronto can afford. The city has been supplying some very limited amount of affordable housing. That means affordable to people with income, say, under $40,000 or under $30,000. And they've been able to um, fund those out of development charges. But in fact, the province is, is cutting a lot of the development charges. And the city staff have reported, and there, there's a report today on city council's agenda about it, because the city is losing development charges. We're losing the ability of creating really affordable housing. And Doug Ford does not come in with any other suggestions. I mean, most of his things, just to get back to a point that that David made, is about suburban housing on greenbelt lands. That is not affordable to most people. Yep. Um, I want to bring up something that I found out last night from a lawyer who watches this stuff, which is actually good news. And it's not on the strong mayor. It's on the other one, the uh, more houses uh, built faster. I love their Orwellian names of their bills. I, I love it. But um, uh, he, this lawyer told me that two of the most egregious and undemocratic provisions of that bill were walked back in committee. And I just want to check this against everybody else, because originally in that bill, uh, it said that neither ratepayers nor neighbors could could uh, complain about this stuff or had recourse to take it to uh, the Ontario Land Tribunal. And I'm told I did not read the document that that was walked back in committee. David? Yeah, that's what I do understand. I, I, I didn't talk to committee members, but I read that in the paper. And this was on the third party intervention. Right. Uh, and that uh, uh, they were, the ratepayers group and so on, were then uh, re-granted their time-honored right to be able to intervene. Uh, I might say that was not extended to the conservation authorities who've been intervening for 75 years on our behalf, to make sure that we got clean water, they don't have the same right. But there's, there's, there's one proviso that you have to recognize in this. Another part of the legislation says that the Ontario Land Tribunal should be more active in awarding costs against the people who lose their appeal. So the challenge you're going to have if you're a community group or just a nearby resident is, if you appeal and lose, 
which is very, very likely, given the composition of the Ontario Land Tribunal, you're going to pay big, big bucks. You're going to be paying for the developers' lawyers. So that while they've rem- they, they now say you can appeal, I want to tell you, not very many people are going to want to appeal because they're going to be in it for very big bucks paying for development lawyers. Uh, you 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 make a, a very good point there. As a matter of fact, I, w- I was uh, in a neighborhood meeting yesterday and, and uh, you know, we we're scratching our heads on on how to convince people to kick in a little bit of cash for something we want to do. So uh, there you go. That's a really good point, John, L- Lauren, but at least... They have the right there. But. Yeah, at least they have a say now, which is better than as it was originally written. Um, I do think that those huge fines are a great deterrent, though, um, as John was just saying, for people to kind of speak out for ratepayer associations to take on developers. I mean, developers seem to have infinite money from where I stand, just seeing the activations they do, the PR stuff they send out, like there's just infinite cash. And for a community group, even if they have really valid concerns, it's like you're never, I mean, you're most likely going to lose in court because they have... Because that's it's not court, it's the land tribunal, exactly. it's the old OMB, of course you're going to lose. It's stacked against you. And so to take on all that cost is just like, ugh, why bother? But at least, you know, they legally have the right to argue against it now. It's unfortunate the conservation groups don't have the same. No, but it was... <laughs> It's the right to have now, but it was a right that was taken away. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, a, like a couple of weeks earlier. Um, yeah. So, so it's not as if they got something in, in the bargain. Uh, they they had the right before it was taken away. And John's right. Um, it's not only the question of having the right; it's a question of being able to afford that right. And in many well-to-do neighborhoods, it's it's still tough enough to raise enough money. Uh, because it's very expensive to go to these things. How about mo- mo- more middle ground and, and right. more? In- I mean, it's very, very difficult. But it's so to me, it's so very much like how the current government, uh, provincial government, does its business. It it seems it talks a good game, but you've got to just look a little further, and you'll find that you're being hurt. Everything in the legislation they brought in in the last little while about cities and land use planning and environmental planning. Much of it has to do, if you're wondering what it's, what it's doing, what it's doing is relieving the development and land speculation industry um, with as little to have to worry about as possible. Yep. Um, I'm going to take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Go ahead. I'm very concerned uh, with all of this. And has anybody received their um, MPAC assessment? Uh, no. Well, well, I received my impact assessment for here in the city and for our cottage. And it's interesting. They've now gone back and they're using a 2016 date. So that basically is going to mean that people will have no idea whether they're being fairly or unfairly assessed. And when you go back, um, uh, Mayor Crombie will remember prior to the mid-80s, Toronto was using a, a 1940 assessment date, uh, and then we went. We to like that a, one. <laughs> well, and then we went to a fair market value one, basically current. But that that encouraged too many people to fight it. So now we now going to deal with material that's six or seven years old. Uh, so Pat, it's, Pat, I, 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 do you want to react to the topic at hand? Yes. The, uh, I'm, quickly. I'm very much concerned with it. Very much concerned. 
And I don't have a problem with Mayor Tory having this power, but I don't want it to be a general power out there for anybody who has elected the mayor. It's just wrong. Okay. That's, uh, that's Unfortunately, though, the, 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 it, it's not, it's not, no law is tailor-made for a specific mayor. One of the great dangers, even if you trust John Tory on it, even if you do, um, what we now have is a law that will apply to anybody who occupies the office. Okay, well, you know, that comment to me says a lot. So people trust John Tory, even not to take advantage, though... I, I, again, uh, it does, I don't see if, if, you know, people trust him that much, why, why he needs this. It just seems, I'd like to know more about how that came about because it just seems out of character. Yeah, people do seem to trust John Tory, but I don't think people trust Doug Ford as much. No. And the way I see <laughs> this is just giving Doug Ford power to do what he wants with Toronto. Well, he's, he has the power is the bottom line. Yeah. I'm looking at the clock. This is a fascinating conversation, uh, but we're sort of running out of time. So, David, what happens next on this? Is it just a matter of uh, you got to see the level of public outrage and maybe it'll be walked back? And, well, and can he actually give back the power? Well, they can retract it. Or they can, there's a number of ways they can choose not to, to implement it. Um, uh, that's that's impossible. He walked back uh, on the notwithstanding clause um, with the federal government, um, and I think you're going to find that there are people who are just as outraged as we are uh, across the province, and and those organizations and individuals and communities are now organizing to see if they can get that bill recanted. John, yeah. well, um, this afternoon, the committee of the legislature is meeting to consider whether or not there will be public hearings on the bill. Many people think that they will decide not to have public hearings because so many people will want to speak out about this. Wait a minute. Um, I thought I thought it was proclaimed already. No, it's not. The, the Strong Mayors Act is proclaimed. Yeah, isn't that, that where this is? No, this this is in the uh, something called with a, a name that... George Orwell would have thought up yeah. the Better Municipal Governance Act. Ah, okay. You know, and, and, and as I say, it's had second reading, but it's, it's been referred to the committee, which meets, I think, at 4 o'clock this afternoon, and they will decide that that's mostly conservative members, a big conservative majority. They'll decide whether there's going to be public hearings. They restricted the hearings on Bill um, 23, which is the Strong Mayors Act, and that was the one where David Crombie and Barbara Hall and myself put in a brief yeah. and asked to speak, and we were not allowed to speak. And, and, John, I was going to say, don't get yourself thrown out of the legislature again. Well, I got <laughs> thrown out because I said, we have a right to speak. And, you know, that's part of democracy. And they said, you do not. You do not have a right. And not only us, but the Association of of Ontario was not even allowed to speak. I mean... So we're very worried that they won't allow any public hearings on this thing where there's a minority vote that the mayor can call for in council. Okay, we'll, well hear about that this afternoon. You know, uh, maybe one saving grace is going to be, you know, both John Tory and Doug Ford, they like to be liked. <laughs>
That's very true. <laughs> Lauren, what, what, where do you think this goes from here as we wrap up? You know, I think if they're not going to let the public have any input, I, you know, what, I like what John Sewell did in the yeah. legislature. I think I'm not trying to incite riots, but I'm like, I think people need to speak out. So like, that was pretty dope. And people need to be heard. They deserve to be heard. So I'm really interested to see how this vote goes this afternoon to see if the public will have any input. So Lauren says, John, get yourself thrown out again. Yes, I thought that was so cool. <laughs> Okay. The love that. D- David, I know that's not your style. <laughs> no, 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 but I love it when John does it, too. On, uh, particularly if he's on the right side of the question. Okay. All righty, then. Uh, I'm going to let everybody go. I'm going to take one more call from our audience. Uh, but before I do that, with Paul in Brampton, thank you so much, David Crombie, John Sewell, and Lauren O'Neill. And Paul in Brampton, you have... Th- 20 seconds. Okay. I My warning to building houses too quickly. They're going to be built like junk. 30 years ago in Brampton, they did the same thing, built them too quick. We had to build a, put, a, put a building freeze in, and then we actually had building inspectors that knew how to build a house. That's my comment, dear. Okay. Thank you. Watch pouring concrete in the winter, calcium flakes. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes. <laughs> Good advice. Don't pour concrete in the winter. Right now, we are taking a break and we'll be back with with another thing from the provincial government that is annoying people. And they have uh, sent a memo to doctors telling them to work longer hours as if they don't work hard now. Uh, We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is the second memo the province has sent to Ontario's doctors in as many weeks. First, there was the note asking doctors to do more in-person visits. That annoyed a lot of them. And now they want family doctors and clinics to extend their hours into evenings and weekends until further notice in order to help alleviate the pressures that children's hospitals are currently facing. Now, a a spokesperson for the health minister, Sylvia Jones, clarified this is a memo, not a directive from the government. So does that make it okay? And is it just something that's necessary, as the province says? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Tara Kieran, a family doctor and researcher at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Chasen Profeto, a family doctor at the Profeto Savitary Family Medicine in Hamilton. Uh, doctors, thank you so much for taking the time. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, let us begin with Dr. Profeto. So uh, uh, how many hours do you work a week and, and as well as your colleagues in there? Is there room for more? <laughs> so we're working a lot. I mean, uh, the doctors in my office and me personally, we're basically working five to six days per week at present including our office, which is basically all day, every day, Monday to Friday, as well as call shifts that uh, span the evenings and the weekends. Right. Uh, So what do you think of getting this memo? 
So to be honest, when I when it first came out, I understood the spirit of it. I didn't. I did not interpret it as some sort of mandate for family doctors to do more than they were currently doing now. But I think it's a call to action for the family docs in in Ontario to really do their best to see more patients if they can, to ensure that the access to the clinic is good, to ensure that they're providing after-hour services when appropriate and when mandated by ministry contract. So I saw it more as, I mean, that's how I interpret it, as, as something to improve, to help relieve the emergency rooms and ensure good access to family medicine. Okay, so you were not offended by it. Dr. Kieran, how about you? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense for, uh, you know, to encourage family doctors to be accessible and available. Um, but I think I will say that I think what my colleagues have rightly reacted to was sort of this implication that um, they weren't stepping up already and the implication maybe that um, the problems in the emergency department were related to them uh, not being, see, being able to see patients in a timely way. And I think it's important for us to note that, you know, while, it'll, uh, you know, it's no doubt important, it is important for folks to be able to reach their family doctor, and we have an important role in being able to counsel our patients, the root of some of these issues um, is different. So, you know, the root relates to a surge in respiratory virus that we're seeing here in Canada, but is actually being felt um, across uh, the world in, in many different countries. Um, it also relates to just understaffing in the emergency department and also understaffing in the hospitals themselves and in home care and long-term care. And that latter part means that there's sort of this buildup of patients waiting in the hospital to be discharged to the community, which then causes a backlog of patients into the eMERGE, which means that there's just less place for patients to be assessed in the eMERGE, which makes it feel like a very overwhelming, and it makes it be a very overwhelming place. Of course, we Um, just learned this week that 2,400 of those uh, alternate level of care patients have been dispatched to nursing homes that were not on their list. But that is, as they say, another question. So uh, it's the implications. Now, uh, you know, one thing I I have to say about the health minister, you know, like her or not, there's no question she's competent, but, you know, uh, she probably flunked out at charm school. Uh, was this the best way, Dr. Perfetto, to uh, galvanize family docs? Because uh, I, I've spoken to a number who sort of uh, took offense at this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I think if you want to make, if you want to give messaging in this regard, there's a lot better methods and ways to do it. And I, I think part of the problem too, the, the other doctor's comments are very accurate and a lot, uh, there's a lot of political history and legacy from blaming things on family doctors and community medicine when this is a group of people that's already doing a ton of work. In our family health organization, we said, okay, let, let, let's make sure we're seeing our kids. Let's make sure we're keeping people out of the hospital as much as we can. But we did it in a much, much more collegial way as opposed to finger pointing or at least not making it seem like that. Yeah, I think that the, the Ministry of Health uh, uh, then issued yet another thing saying, oh, well, we love the doctors. But uh, yeah, that, I mean, I would agree that the implication there is that that you're not doing enough, which is uh, frankly insulting. And on the other side of it, and I'm 
you know, I hate to be a dog with a bone, but, but on the other hand, there's really uh, not much response when you have the chief medical officer of health partying maskless. You know, what message does that send about everyone doing their part to uh, stop or uh, prevent some of these respiratory infections? Look, it, I mean, it's really important that people protect themselves as much as they can um, um, by wearing masks, by getting vaccinated, both for the flu and for COVID. Um, anyone who's over five can actually get a COVID and a flu shot together at the same time. And I really encourage uh, parents in particular to do that for their children because we see just many children actually being under vaccinated at this time. Um, ultimately, whether you choose to wear a mask is a choice, and um, and you know people are are I think following the rules that are out there right now. Um, but I also do want to just pick up on an earlier point that you made. Um, you know, I think another piece that's maybe not being talked about as much is, or it has been talked about, but needs to be linked to this conversation is that uh, you know there are a number of family doctors that have actually left practice and stopped working uh, due to the stresses of the pandemic. Many who've taken early retirement. A recent study we just did found that, in fact, one in five family doctors are thinking about closing their practice in the Toronto region in the next uh, five years. And that just is just a glimpse of what we might have to see. So part of the issue, too, is that we have growing rates of what I would say are, are, are folks without a family doctor. And I think we need to make sure that as we're doing the messaging out there, that we're supporting folks currently in practice so that we don't make that problem even worse. And provide positive messaging about uh, family practice as a profession so that we can encourage folks to go into go into that. And then lastly, I will say I would love to see from our provincial government more clear public health messaging to um, our patients, both about keeping safe, but also actually to advice to parents about what to do. Many of us are have been hosting webinars for our patients to say, you know, this is when you need to see the doctor. This is when, you know, you might need to go to the eMERGE. This is when you can manage at home, and this is how you can manage at home. But I'd love to see a big health promotion campaign about that uh, that reaches all Ontarians so that everyone has that information and is clear about how they can manage their symptoms at home and when it is that they need to seek care. Hmm. Well, yeah, uh, even if you're kind of informed, that can be, that can be, uh, Tricky for people, and there are like lots of telehealth and all of that. Let's take a call from Helen in Toronto. Hi, Helen. Hi, Hi Libby. I've had a crazy problem going from uh, January forward uh, with um, the garbage collection, but before they will do anything. Okay, about- Helen, we're talking no, about doctors, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know why people do that. Why they tell one thing to our producer that is on topic, and then to start talking about. <laughs> Garbage collection. Um, you, you know, you tomorrow is free for all Friday, and Helen, you can call back and talk about garbage to your heart's content. Right now, it's uh, time for us to wrap up this segment. So, Doctor Perfetto, uh, do you think that this memo will have any impact on uh, services that people can access from their family doctors? I'm overall, I'm not sure it's going to have a major impact because the people that are delivering the message don't necessarily have the trust and the the support in Folsom from the, the doctors in the community in Ontario. I, I think the, the, the major, major message should come from physicians in leadership or people in leadership that have the trust and support of people and doctors. 
people, uh, people in leadership who do not incite panic and fear, and there's been a lot of that over the last couple of years, calm messaging, good sound advice, a lot of viral infections resolve on their own, some things need closer attention, and a lot of this can, like nine out of ten times, these things can be effectively managed in the community, but we need calm leadership, lack of panic, no fear-mongering, and, and a, 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 a collective voice to show people where to go uh, and to seek care. And Dr. Kieran, w- would this, uh, you know, would this medicine go down better if it came from the Ontario Medical Association or other bodies like that versus the Ministry of Health? Yeah, you know, it's always hard to say, but I think it's, all, it's also always better when uh, there are a number of different groups that are collaborating together to put out messaging um, I think we just have to be very careful, and I think it's, in fairness to the ministry, in their letter, it did acknowledge up front that family doctors were doing a lot of work, but I think there's just been so much feel of being blamed over the last two and a half years for not doing our part that it was easy for folks to just, like, overlook that and hear the other part. Um, and I think it also, you know, I think the other piece is that we're asking people to do more without more resources. Now, there was mention in the letter that we make resources available, but maybe there needed to be more detail there about how we could resource, how family doctors could apply for more funding um, to be able to get resourced to keep their practice open on these, on you know, evenings and weekends if um, they had, you know, so that, that they had staff and uh, to do that. So I think that there were different ways in which perhaps this could be done. I do appreciate that they, they tried to acknowledge it, but it um, obviously didn't land well. Okay, obviously didn't land well. Uh, I think that's a good note to wrap things up on. Uh, Dr. Tara Kieran and Dr. Jason Profetto, thanks so much for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to the mayor of Burlington. Uh, There is now a mask mandate for employees of the city of Burlington, and I want to talk about that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And now I want to talk about an instance of leadership by example on the issue of masking. And of course, masking is one way to prevent more of that spread that is worsening the crisis in our hospitals. So the city of Burlington is requiring its employees to wear masks while in its facilities. The general public will not be subject to this same requirement. And there are reasons specific to this workplace for doing this, but I think it has a, a, a broader impact. And now I'm joined by Marion Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington. Mayor Ward, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Thank you for your interest. So uh, why did you impose this mandate on your employees? So this was something that came out of uh, a discussion. We reconvened our emergency control group, uh, which was the group of uh, staff. I was a member uh, of that group representing council uh, that we had throughout the state of emergency during the height of COVID. When we started to see what was happening in the community and in our own workplace with employee absences uh, skyrocketing, 
we uh, we convened a team to say what you know what do we need to um, what do we need to do to address this and and we have an obligation to have a safe workplace. So that group reconvened and uh, ultimately it was our human resources staff and our health and safety staff that made the call to require employees to wear a mask. I fully support the decision and understand the reasons that uh, that are behind it, but I do want to point out that it was staff and the reason for that is that this was not a political decision. This was not a council decision. This was a decision made by human resources, health and safety staff. It was a health and safe workplace decision. And is is that why uh, you didn't uh, expand it to include people visiting City Hall? Well, that would require a bylaw of council, and uh, you know those those are always difficult uh, to uh, to enforce and to put in, and that is not something that we're looking at right now. The we are following the uh, chief medical officer of health uh, guidelines, which are a strong recommendation to wear masks indoors, and we've posted those signs at all of our facilities uh, ever since that was. Uh, was announced, and we're encouraging people to uh, follow what the recommendations are. Uh, Speaking of the Chief Medical Officer of Health, a couple of days after he put out that strong recommendation, he was partying maskless in very close quarters. What do you make of that? So throughout the the pandemic, when masks were required, they could be removed in restaurants while eating and drinking. Dancing? Uh, Sorry? (laughs) While dancing? Yeah, d- dancing. No, uh, I think a lot of he the was dance dancing. floors were closed. So, um, uh, you know, the one photo I saw of him, he had a drink in his hand. Uh, but yeah, I think it. I think it's really important for all of us uh, in positions of leadership to, uh, you know, to walk the talk. And if uh, masks are required, uh, or if they are recommended, that we uh, lead by example. It's really important to do that. Uh, do you think that the action that you have just taken uh, is going to have a wider impact in terms of leadership by example? And do you know if any other municipalities are thinking about doing the same thing? We haven't heard that. Uh, in fact, we've heard the opposite. Uh, I, I saw a report that, for example, Toronto was asked if they're going to do this. They've They've said no. Um, you know, that, that may change for, for people because it really, in our case, it was truly a health and safety, uh, workplace safety issue and our ability to continue to deliver services. So we have had a fourfold increase in employee absences, uh, leaves of absence due to illness, including mental health. And we have trouble delivering the services that the folks that are left behind they're getting burnt out because they're doing they're doing double duty and and so it becomes a domino effect and we've got this perfect storm in the community of RSV of covid of flu uh, it always gets worse uh, even before covid during the winter months when more people are inside and so this is a very targeted a uh, time-limited approach to try to protect our uh, staff, keep them healthy, keep them safe, uh, and fulfill our obligations as an employer for a healthy, uh, a healthy workplace. Have you had pushback from uh, some of your employees? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it unfortunately the issue of masks has been politicized and weaponized. And that's really uh, that's really unfortunate because masks are a health issue. Period. Full stop. 
it is how we, it's one step, it's not the only step, but it's one step alongside washing hands, alongside getting vaccinated, that will help to reduce the severity of uh, COVID if you get it and to prevent spread. And, and we owe that to each other when, when, we are, uh, when we're a community of people that cares for each other. But it's been politicized. And uh, so, of course, uh, I've, I've, yes, I've received quite a few, uh, uh, mostly anonymous, by the way. So I don't know. Yeah, well, I, don't know I would imagine it so. It, it's mostly anonymous. Uh, but the good news is that the overwhelming majority of people that I have heard from have said, finally, uh, somebody is stepping up to make a courageous decision, show some leadership, um, Kudos to you, and I hope my municipality of XYZ uh, follows suit. So, so the good people out there, uh, the majority of them, uh, are uh, supportive of this and would like to see more. What is the situation? I haven't heard much about uh, the hospitals near Burlington. What are the situations there? Uh, it does fluctuate day to day, but the biggest, one of the biggest issues, and this is system wide, is cancellation of surgeries. And it really is a misnomer to call those elective. Uh, some of the procedures that are being postponed and canceled, people are getting sicker and sicker and sicker while they wait for those procedures, in some cases with devastating consequences. And, and this includes things like cancer treatments. So, uh, you know, which, which happened during, uh, during COVID, people having to wait for, uh, for treatments. And so we all have to be uh, concerned about that. There, you know, the, the medical, um, uh, the medical community has reached out to the province to say, look, there are, uh, over a million procedures that are, that are so-called elective. That's the wrong word. These, these are, these are necessary procedures that keep people healthy and help them, um, not decline into worsening or, or, or potentially fatal, uh, conditions. We owe it to those folks to get them the procedures that they need. And as long as the hospitals are full with RSV, COVID, and flu, those surgeries are continued to be canceled. It is, it is terrible, and we've been here before, and we already have a backlog mm-hmm, from yeah. uh, three years of COVID. So how long will this mask uh, mandate or requirement, how long will it be in place? We have uh, said six weeks. Uh, that's the that's the critical period historically. If you think back to when the major lockdowns occurred, they were typically right around Christmas, uh, December, January, uh, November, right around this time. That's when there's a peak in uh, viral um, viral spread. And so we've said, look, let's give it six weeks till January eight. If conditions change uh, for the better, we can lift it sooner. Uh, and we'll reevaluate at that time, uh, and hopefully things will be uh, a little bit better, and this will be in our rearview mirror. And uh, what would you like to leave us with? Wash your hands, get vaccinated, wear a mask when you're inside, look out for each other, and most of all, be kind. Mayor Marianne Weed-Ward, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your interest. Appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, people. So Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So I encourage you to call. Uh, Bob Comsick will be in the chair for that. I will be back on Monday. And uh, one piece of breaking news, uh, for those of you who were following the ownership battle involving the Toronto Star and Metroland, uh, 
there's breaking news that Jordan Bitov, the Bitov family, has won that battle and uh, he will be the sole owner of the Toronto Star. Uh, and that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.